0: Hello and welcome to the No BS Approach to Motherhood podcast hosted by Catherine Hay and Shelley McKenzie. We are both mothers and clinical nutritionists who specialize in women's health. We are here to not only bring you the most up-to-date nutritional and health advice when it comes to fertility, pregnancy, postpartum and children's nutrition, but our main goal is to break through the BS that can come with motherhood. No topic is off limits, so grab a cuppa or a glass of wine and join us for another raw and real conversation surrounding motherhood.
1: So we are joined today by a beautiful client of mine, Anastasia McBride. She has been a client of mine over the last year, um, and I'm so excited to have you on today, Anastasia, to talk us through one of the most unimaginable experiences um, through cancer and pregnancy and beyond. So thank you so much for coming on to our show, Anastasia, and sharing your journey through motherhood with us as well. So today we just thought we'll interview you about your whole journey. So can you fill us in a little bit about yourself, your beautiful boy, Richie, and start us, start from the beginning?
2: Okay, um, well, yeah, so I'm Anastasia McBride. I have a beautiful, almost five-month-old baby, Richie. Um, and my husband and I, we both met in Byron Bay where we lived and we got married at the end of last year. Um, and during last year we brought a house in Tasmania with the plan to move down after we got married and then start a family so we were you know living our dream life in Byron had the best time there met fell in love got married then made the move down to Tasmania Um, and not long after we moved down found out I was pregnant which was all part of our plan and um it was, you know, we were so excited. We were about to move into our dream property, about to start our family. Um, my husband, was, he was working full-time. I was working remotely for my employer in Byron Bay. So everything was just, you know, going to plan. Um, and then around my around about my 12-week scan, I was then diagnosed cervical cancer so leading up to that when we to fall pregnant I had a screening test on because my GP at the time recommended recommended it as part of the family planning process just to make sure everything was healthy I was due for one um, anyway so he did that test and it came back with abnormal cells and that's all I was told
1: yeah, and this is so lovely. When you when was your last year prior to that one?
2: Um, when I was about twenty seven, so about five years ago.
1: Yeah, so you waited that five years, which is recommended by our healthcare professionals, and then they said, okay, it's time now. Did your GP? I remember you t- telling me it took a while. You know, you're kind of bouncing around GPs, and it wasn't until you found one that you really liked that suggested it might be time to do one. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I just, I'm. I have always been a, you know, pretty healthy person. Exercise regularly, eat really healthy, live a balanced lifestyle. Like I'm not a saint. I still like to indulge, but, um, you know, on on overall, I I live a really healthy lifestyle. Um, so feel like I needed to see a, G, a GP regularly, um, and. Yeah, definitely bounce between a few until I found one that I like. My GP obviously recommended to get the blood tests done to check that everything was, um, you know, you know, check for Hep B and HIV, all that stuff. Make sure everything was all good before um, trying to conceive. Um, and then the other test she recommended was the cervical screening test. She looked it up and said you're due for one anyway. Um, so I had that test done and then that came back with the abnormal cells. Um, and we were, when I got the results for that, we were literally like a week or two out from moving to Tasmania. So she said, just get it checked out once you get there and, um, don't leave it too long. Just, just get on top of it as soon as you're there. So we moved down. It was right before Christmas all of the specialists and GPs closed for about two weeks around that time down here. Um, And obviously I asked around to get some recommendations on who would be good to see. Once I found someone that um, everybody spoke highly of, I went and saw her, but it was at the same time that I found out that I was pregnant. Um, So she... So we kind of focused more on the fact that I was pregnant and went through getting those blood tests done, um, the dating scan done. Um, And I said to her at the same time, I I have been told I have these abnormal cells um, and that I may need to get the LEP procedure. And that was was kind of the only information that was given to me by the other GP um, back up north prior to coming down. So I feel like... Even in that process, there was a little bit of a breakdown in communication. Yeah. Um, and then the GP here said, "Oh, yeah, you, you can get the let procedure when you're pregnant. It's not recommended though, but we'll just get you checked out anyway. So she said, if you end up having to have this let procedure while you're pregnant, you'll end up being a high-risk pregnancy. So what I'll do is refer you to the hospital system because you'll end up having to see an obstetrician and that way you'll get that continuity of care throughout your pregnancy rather than having to go to a, a private specialist and then dealing with the hospital system on top as well. So yeah, by the time that all came around, by the time I got to see the specialist for that check it was around about my 12 week scan. Um, So I had my 12-week scan, we were so excited, baby was looking healthy, happy, and it was really interesting at that scan, the sonographer said, it looks like there is some sort of infection happening. He's like, I'm not really sure what it is. It could be a benign cyst. Um, Worst case scenario, you might end up having to have a caesarean birth. And we're like, okay, cool, no worries. Didn't really think twice about it. Um, and then two days later, I was booked in to see the gynecologist, gynecologist, is that how you say it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she, you know, they ask you like all the obvious questions like, do you understand why you are here? And, you know, uh, explained what they were going to do. She said, we- we'll have to take a little biopsy to have it sent off for testing, um, all those, you know risks involved with that alone Um, and then so she takes me into the room looks at everything under the microscope and just says oh I'm just gonna go get my colleague I'll be back in a moment and I was like okay that's a bit weird maybe she's training to you know maybe she's fresh from school and she just needs confirmation on something and she goes and gets her colleague Brings him back in and he introduces himself and he says, hi, I am I allowed to say his name?
1: Yeah, you can say whatever you want.
2: I'm Michael Bunting. I'm the gynae oncologist. And I was like, okay, it was getting a bit weird, but whatever. Um, I'm just going to have a look at and see how things are looking. And then he was really ch- chatty, friendly. I got a really good vibe from him. He seemed to really, you know, like a really good doctor um and then he has a look and straight away says to me I'm not going to bullshit you you have cervical cancer
1: oh. oh
3: my god so you're 12 weeks pregnant and you've just found that out <sighs>
2: yeah you know and we were like so excited everything was coming to life with what we had planned you know we had really big dreams for what was going to happen in the future. So excited about starting a new family, being in a new place, being in our new home. So we had all of these amazing things going on. And then it felt like we our world just got tipped on its head. So yeah, in that in that appointment he, when he said that straight away, I said, but what about my baby? Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to have to, you know, send this biopsy off and I want you to have surgery next week. This was on a Friday. Um, and he said, go get Adele, who is his nurse. Um, Adele comes over. She's checking my lymph nodes, feeling all over my body to make sure that um, nothing else is inflamed. And he's like, I'm going to have to take you into another room. We're going to have to chat about this. We'll Go through everything. So I'm there hysterical, crying on my own um, because I just thought, oh, this is just an appointment just to check things. Worst case, I might have to have the LET procedure, which alone was daunting, but um, I was okay with that. Mm-hmm. So to be told that diagnosis was pretty devastating. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. It's monumental.
2: Yeah, yeah, and obviously you have all these thoughts running through your head when you're excited about this family that you're starting. Yeah, it was it was pretty full on. So he takes me off into another room and says, "I'm going to book you in for this surgery on Wednesday." Um goes over the risks and complications, which one of the risks was I could potentially lose my baby throughout that surgery. They could accidentally break the waters and then have to terminate. And I would be asleep. So I wouldn't know until I would wake up if, if that had happened. Um, and then I think what was the other? the other risk was, you know, really a lot of bleeding, excessive bleeding, which for some reason that can happen when you're pregnant. I'm not sure of the reason why. Um, and then the other risk was if everything went okay, I would be at a high risk of going into preterm labour. So that was all a lot to digest when he'd already dumped (laughs) the big diagnosis on me. They were amazing at comforting me. They called my husband and said, you need to come here to pick her up. I don't want her driving home today. My husband was at work on a ladder. The nurse calls him, tells him the diagnosis, and um, he said he almost, yeah, fell off the ladder. He called his parents to bring him in to pick up my car and collect me from, from the practice. He arrived, and I'll never forget meeting him at the front door. I saw him walking up, and as he walked up, I walked out. And sorry. I always, you're, get, kind of, you're okay. We both just started crying. Um, and he said, Everything's gonna be okay, we're gonna get through it. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> it's always that bit that gets me. I just, I'll never forget that moment. Um, yeah, it was really, um, hard, <laughs> yeah. Um, um so. The next step was getting an MRI before having this surgery. So the surgery is called cone biopsy surgery. And, um, I had to travel down to Hobart to have that surgery. So we left on the Tuesday. We, I had the MRI on the way down and then we stayed down there the night before and the night of the surgery, just so we were close to the hospital and the specialists. Um, And then that was on, so I was diagnosed on the 11th of February and then on the 16th of February I had the biopsy procedure. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind this is, you know, COVID was running rampant at this point in Tasmania. They had done a pretty good job at keeping it at bay, but it was starting to flare up at that point. So when I went to the hospital to have the surgery done, I had to go by myself and they were doing all the administration forms and the nurse was asking me all the questions. And so you're pregnant. Yes, I'm pregnant. And do you understand what you're here for today? Uh, I start crying again. So she calls the surgeon, who is the the person that actually diagnosed me. He works in that clinic once a fortnight, so I was very lucky he was there that day. So he had everything rushed through for the following week really quickly. And he, um, he said to the nurse, where is her husband? She said they won't let him in because of COVID. And he said, I want him in there with her. Get him oh. in So this is the type of person he is. He's just amazing. Um Throughout my whole care, he was just incredible and just has so much empathy, which I find sometimes with surgeons and specialists is hard. We don't get that empathy, but he was just like, he just felt like a normal person, Mm -hmm. cared so much. So he ended up getting my husband into the hospital, met us both before I went through to have the surgery, said, Think it's like it is isolated to just the cervix in the MRI it's really tricky to diagnose with an MRI because you're pregnant we can't do the proper testing which is a scan to make sure it's not anywhere else in your body we can only really see the size of it in the MRI so that all was sounding really positive I felt really good going into the surgery I put to the back of my mind all of the risks and complications, didn't really think twice about it before going through with surgery. I just thought, no, I feel like I'm in really good hands. I trust this guy. Everything's going to be okay. So I went through, had surgery, and before the surgery, they did a scan to see the baby just to comfort me. And then when I came out of the surgery, they did another scan. And he yeah, it's so all really reassuring
3: absolutely
2: and then I um, he said to me this could be the tip of the iceberg when I came out from surgery I'm going to send this piece off we're going to test it and then I will call you as soon as I have the results he said he removed 2.5 by 2.5 centimeters of my myself oh massive yeah so he said, well, we'll just we'll get the biopsy back and we'll go from there. But then he was playing the waiting game and it took, I think, two days to get the results. He brushed it through and by the Friday of that week he called me, I think it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I missed his call, so he actually left his personal number on my voicemail and said, I want you to call me back straight away. So I called him back, and he said, "Look, I'm really sorry, but the surgery wasn't enough. We couldn't completely remove it with the surgery. Um, I want to see you on Monday morning and discuss your options with you. I think there's a way we can still do your treatment, and you still have a family." And I was obviously hysterical. I sobbed into my husband's chest and said, I just don't understand. I'm so healthy. I've been so healthy for so long. I look after myself. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Um, It was really, yeah, that was so, that the diagnosis and that was the hardest parts for sure because you obviously think, how am I going to get through this?
1: And being young, Anastasia, like you're at the peak of your fertility, you're, you know, and it's all those questions, what ifs, hows, how did this happen, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah it's that exactly because I am I feel like I am young. I was like I just, you know, I have so much life left to live and I'm not done yet, you know. I'm just right at the beginning of it. So we, we weren't sure exactly what, we, what he was going to say to us, um, but he just said, you know, I'll go over the options with you. I want, I want to talk to you face-to-face. I can tell you over the phone, but this is a really serious conversation and I feel like we need to sit down and talk, to this, talk about this face-to-face. So we went back down to Hobart and met him in his consulting room. So Hobart's about three hours from where we live put that into perspective as well. It's not just a trip down the road. (laughs) Um, So we went back down to Hobart, met him first thing in the morning. He came in early and saw us before the rest of his patients for the day. And the options, he said, were chemotherapy whilst you're pregnant. Once you get to 30 weeks, we'll deliver the baby. And when you're 24 weeks, I want you to relocate down to Hobart so that we can keep a close eye on you because you are at extreme risk of preterm birth from this surgery we've just done. And he then said, look, it's 2022. We have the best technology now. You are in really good hands. I want you to see a particular oncologist here in Hobart. I want you to see a particular um, obstetrician in Hobart as well. And you can get your treatment done near home, but you won't get the same love and care. They were the exact words he used, love and care. So I thought, you know what, okay, this, this sounds like a pretty good option. It's overwhelming, the thought of it. I don't really understand how it all works, but it sounds promising. And then the second thought was, actually, how does chemotherapy work while you're pregnant? Like, you're not even supposed to drink. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's hard to wrap your head around, but we have done this before. Five years ago, we treated another lady with the same type of cancer as you, who was also pregnant, and now she has a beautiful daughter that is healthy and strong and thriving. So um, then he started going through the, the other options. The second option was then hysterectomy, like then, Whoa. and freeze in place with the hope to do a surrogacy in the future. If, if we went for that option, it still wasn't guaranteed that my ovaries would be left because he would have to check them at the time of doing surgery to make sure that they were in a condition to be be left. So that was a huge gamble. We were just like, you know, that that doesn't really sound like a very good option. We might not get a family if we do that. Then the next option was radical hysterectomy, just take everything out. Then the next option was radiation therapy. He's like, I don't really recommend that for you right now. Um I think chemotherapy is your best option. So my husband left we were pretty like devastated at you know the results and all of the options, but we left feeling confident that the first option was going to be the best option for us. We went um, and had a look around Hobart that day because he was like the the specialist said to us. I have booked you in to see the oncologist here today. I just want you to go and chat with her, um, and then you can make your decision. So my husband went my husband and I went around Hobart, we filled in the time until we saw her and we talked about it. We' were like, okay, yeah chemotherapy this this is the, the choice that we feel comfortable with. It's all overwhelming like having a baby at 30 weeks it's so young and fresh. but the, the statistics were that the survival rate is the same as a 40 week old baby. So that was comforting to hear that. We went and saw the oncologist and then she discussed all of the possible complications and um, side effects, which were overwhelming. I was a mess at appointment and I was like, oh, gosh, I don't know. Now I don't know if this is the right choice. Um, you know, you could, I could possibly go deaf. I could get permanent numbness and tingling in my hands and feet. I could be really sick, vomiting, I could lose a lot of weight. Like there are so many things that could happen and it just be an absolute nightmare. So when we left that appointment, I was completely out of sorts. And my husband said to me, You don't have to do this. And I was like, But do you think you could live a life without a family, life without kids? And he said, it would be hard, but we could do it. You're more important to me. Um, So that was really hard. Yeah, it was like a three-hour drive back home and all I could think about was I'm just, he's married a (laughs) dud. And, um, you know, how are we going to get through this next little part? Nothing's guaranteed sounds so complex. And um, they wanted to rush me through for chemotherapy like the next day. I just said, I, I, I just need time to think about it. Um, can I, you know, can it wait a week? And they said, it can, but obviously we want to get started straight away. So we went home um, back to my husband's parents' place and obviously fell into a bit of a heap once we got there had dinner with them and decided that we would do the chemotherapy. That was the best outcome, really. It would be really hard at the time, but it had the greatest reward at the end, which was a baby the family. And, um, yeah, so we, we decided that was the, the best option for us. And then the next day we went back down to Hobart. <laughs> I was checked into the hospital and had to stay there overnight just they had to do observations with me steroids antihistamines in preparation for doing the chemotherapy the following day and then the next day I started the chemotherapy and the chemotherapy was a long slog it was not just a few hours because of the protocol they had to follow for me being pregnant it was about eight hours, sitting in the chair, having chemotherapy.
3: Was your hubby allowed in at that point? Was he allowed to come in?
2: He was for the first two sessions. They were very compassionate given the circumstances. So it was nice having him there. The first one I was like, oh, this this isn't, it's not too bad. Like I was really scared and nervous ab- about it. Um, but, yeah, you're just sitting there, you have the iv drip going in your arm and they just pump you full of fluids the chemotherapy and then there's um i think it's called mannitol and magnesium and electrolytes just to help with your kidneys then we went home after that treatment the first session and I was feeling fine. I didn't get sick. I didn't get nauseous. I felt I felt really good considering what I just had to do. And sorry, I'm just like having to recap it all. <laughs> um, then I knew I would lose my hair. That was the next part of the, the process of having chemotherapy. And when it first started falling out, I was completely fine with it. I knew it was going to happen. I told myself. This is all part of the the process. It's fine. Um, And then it got a couple of days in and I lost about half my hair and I ended up up having to shave my head. That was another really difficult part of the journey because it's such a huge part of your identity, your hair. It's like how you, you know, you style it to how you feel. You might feel like fun, so you curl it or you just throw it up or whatever, and that was Hard letting go of that. Um, And even when I saw my oncologist, the second cycle of chemotherapy, she was like, whoa, you have lost your hair really quickly.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: That that was really hard.
1: It would have been so hard, Anastasia, because you've just, like in such a short period of time, you've gone from, you know, happy days, Pregnancy to you know losing so much of yourself to this massive diagnosis, but being pregnant at the same time, losing your hair, which like you said is your identity, like all these layers that are can Like it's, it's just so huge. It's so huge. You're so incredibly brave talking
2: about this. I've I've almost like I have I have these moments where I feel like if I you know right now my hair's short because it's growing back if i didn't have this short hair and i didn't have some photos to look back on i'd almost think it didn't happen because it's just so unbelievable yeah i have those moments all the time
1: <laughs> i bet i bet it's like a it's like a response it's like you just yeah the more it's a stress response isn't it yeah a trauma response and a grief response
2: yeah Totally, yeah. And, you know, I've had points where I've been like, I just want my body back. I'm so over this journey. That was more towards the end though, yeah, but that kind of that feeling came into place. Um, So then uh, the next part of the journey was I was in my third cycle. They told me I'd have to have six before delivering the baby and I was like, awesome. I'm halfway. I only have three more to go. This is, this is going okay. I haven't been sick. I've, you know, felt a little bit more tired, but I'm also pregnant. So this is normal to feel tired. Um, I can get through this and just had like a really positive mindset at that point. And then, um, this was the first session that they wouldn't let my husband come into the hospital with me. I was okay. I was comfortable. I knew the process. I understood what the days would entail every time I had to go in for the chemotherapy treatments. And my surgeon came in to see me to touch base with it, with how everything was going. I had to have MRIs prior to each chemotherapy just to check the the chemo, the chemotherapy was working. So he came in and he said, you know, we've got good news. The first two chemotherapy treatments have shown that the cancer has regressed. Um, it's almost shrunk by half. The, the tumor's almost shrunk by half. So I was like, awesome. This is great. This is like the best news. But then he said the own om- there is another side to it. Um, you, the uh, sorry, the initial MRI, the first one, the initial reporting was inaccurate, and the tumor was actually bigger than what we originally thought. Which means that when your baby is delivered, instead of doing a hysterectomy, which was the plan, they they were going to deliver, do a hysterectomy at the time of his birth just to, you know, take everything out um, and make sure that the cancer doesn't spread anywhere else. He said, we won't be able to do that hysterectomy now. What you will have to do instead is radiation therapy post-birth about a month after birth alongside chemotherapy treatments. So I was just felt like I'd gotten another blow after going through so much. Um, Even though we were feeling really good about everything, I was really positive, not feeling sick. It was just like we thought we were close to getting towards the end of this, but cancer doesn't work like that. (laughs) So um, and then obviously I didn't have my husband there with me to, share that news with and digest it together it was then you know i had to relay it to him at the end of the day when i saw him and it was hard it was so hard it was like this we still have so much more ahead of us than just birthing our son and moving on with our lives it's not going to it's not going to work like that um then once we wrapped our heads around it we were like okay it's going to be really hard but we can do it. We've got so much support around us. We can we can get through this next little bit. They, um, they also decided that they would let me go to 34 weeks and move down to Hobart at 28 weeks. So we would have more time at home being in our own space and our baby could develop longer in my stomach before being delivered, which to us felt, better than delivering him at 30 weeks (laughs) so then we got to 28 weeks we moved down to hobart and by that point i was having to go into the hospital like every week just to see my obstetrician midwives oncologist um, my surgeon discussing the next steps involved in the treatment and um, checking that the baby was healthy and happy which he was we, we were quite lucky we got to have so many scans with him just to give us that reassurance um, that everything was progressing the way that it should and that he was happy and healthy. Uh, once I was 34 weeks he was delivered and at the time of his delivery my surgeon transplanted my ovaries to my side abdomen and removed my tubes. So he did the ovary transplant to protect them from the radiation therapy scatter for when I was going to have that next stage of treatment.
1: Wow. I didn't even know you could do that.
2: No, I didn't either, but it's possible and, um, yeah, it works. So I've got little in my ovaries now so that when they do scans, they know that that's what's there.
1: Yeah. Incredible. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and when my son was delivered we I was awake for the whole surgery including the ovary transplant my husband was able to stay with me for the whole surgery as well because I chose not to go to sleep
3: huge and Anastasia what was that moment like when you finally had your baby
2: when he was delivered because he was 30 weeks they said you know, we, we're not sure how his lungs will be. He, he will for a few weeks yeah. just to um, help him out. And when he was born, he came up screaming. So that was just the biggest relief for my husband. And I cried. I was like, he's okay. We're okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, it was just the over, over, most overwhelming feeling knowing that he was totally fine. Um, so he, he, I couldn't actually hold him straight away when he was born. They said to us, we have to actually wrap him up in plastic to keep him warm because he can't regulate his temperature just yet. So they, they did that, checked him over, brought him over to me. I got to give him a little kiss on the cheek and then they had to take him up to Niku and put him on a CPAP machine to help with his breathing. Yeah, of course. He, he actually did really well in Niku and developed and progressed really quickly. He only spent three weeks in there. So by the time he was at his 39-week gestation, we were able to take him home. Wow. They told us, you know, be prepared to for him to be in there for maybe a month at least, but he was a little trooper and just did so well so quickly. He was on the CPAP machine for I think one day and then he had to go on. It's called the high flow machine. So it just helps push air into his lungs to get him moving his lungs up and down um, with his breathing, just to encourage it. So he knows what to do and, With that, he was only on that for a couple of days. So that was all so awesome when we'd just gone through what we had. He was born and just doing so well um, given the circumstances. And, yeah, what was happening? Yeah, he was in the humidity crib as well. That was only for a few days. And then they put him on what's called a cosy therm. So it's basically like an electric blanket just to keep him, his temperature regulated until he could do it on his own. And then I think he was off that in I think about a week off the Cozy then, but he did have to be fed by a nasal gastric tube for the three weeks that he was in there. As soon as he could latch feed, that was when we were able to take him home. So um, yeah. cool. he did amazing. He was
1: Strong like his mama
2: yeah yeah it was so it was an intense environment to be in the NICU environment because they have monitors on them i was too nervous Mm -hmm. out of the humidity crib my husband was amazing and just got in there and would get him out and hand him to me and meanwhile i i think you know because i'd had the cesarean i was just like what if i drop him Yeah, But, yeah, my husband was awesome and just, you know, we'd get in there, get him out. He was so confident with him and um, we got lots of time with him out of the humidity crib as well because they really encourage, um, it's called Kanga Cuddles, so skin-on-skin skin contact because that helps them with their development. And, um, yeah, so he was only in there for a few weeks and, um, before we took him home, they let us do what's called a transition to homeroom. So it's basically like an apartment in the hospital, but you have the emergency button for the nurse and there's one nurse allocated to you if you need them. And so we did that before we took him home. We stayed in that room and it was pretty crazy because you're so used to all these monitors on on them and you know alarms go off all the time because other babies' monitors are going off. And then you've got this tiny little human in this room alone with no one's help. It's mm. the wildest thing, but also just felt like we were at, at the, the right stage for that when we came home. And that that night went really well. He fed really well. We didn't have to call the nurse once. So the next morning we took him up and we weighed him, and then discharged us so we could go home. And. Then- leaving the hospital carrying him out was the most surreal feeling and just you know we were like this is what we this is why we went through what we went through this is why we fought so hard to get to this point he's healthy and happy and doing well and doing all the right things like he wasn't really far behind in his development which they said for us to expect because he was born six weeks premature and so we, we did the three-hour drive back home and I sat in the back seat the whole way and watched him breathing because I was just so nervous. And then we got home and we, we pretty much cried. <laughs> My husband's parents were waiting for us with the fire on. The house was nice and cosy and it just felt amazing to be at home after being away for three months because we were in Hobart for three months prior to delivery, and then the last three weeks after he was born, and um, and then I had to have a PET scan the day after we got home.
1: Whoa! Straight back into it.
2: So three weeks into you know post surgery, still recovering from a cesarean, um, and they actually had to do a bigger incision for my cesarean due to the other surgery involved with the o- ovarian transplant. So um, I was still, you know, sore. I wasn't fully, you're not fully recovered at that point. Um, No, it's
3: like six weeks for they they say six weeks for a cesarean recovery.
2: Yeah, like it's. You know, I didn't feel it walking around, but getting in and out of bed was tricky. I'd have to roll onto my side and leverage myself up because it was painful to to get up. So then I had the the PET scan the following day after we arrived home. And I didn't really I didn't really have any doubts about that. I was like, I think this is all gonna be okay now. And that was obviously just to check that there was nowhere, uh, no cancer, the cancer wasn't anywhere else in my body. The only challenging part about that was because they inject a radioactive sugar into your body. I couldn't actually hold my son for they say eight hours. We did 24 because I just wanted to be, you know, safe with him he was everything that we've been through to to get him here i i just didn't want to risk any complications and then yeah so that was really hard because when he was crying it was like this form of torture not being able to pick him up
1: absolutely i can't even imagine that
3: it's like that maternal instinct you hear your baby cry and you just drop everything you're doing and want to be there you know like i yeah
2: you know and you and being a mom you just know what they need so Mm. he would cry sometimes I'd be like I think he just wants a cuddle to my husband he's like I just burped him and fed him I don't know why he's crying like just pick him up yeah (laughs) and then sure enough you know he's fine but even just like waking up in the night my husband had to feed him that night and he wasn't waking up when he was rustling around and starting to stir and even starting to cry a little bit, I'd have to nudge him and be like, "You have to get up. You have to feed." Him.
3: <laughs> All males are the same.
2: <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was a bit um, tricky. Then the uh, I think it was the following day after I had the PET scan. It was either the following day or two days later. I had a consult with the radiation oncologist. Radiation therapy oncologist and he said good news PET scan's great it's just in your cervix we don't have to worry about treating anywhere else Um, I can't even see it in any of your lymph nodes so that was like the biggest green tick amazing news to hear going into the next phase of treatment and he said I want you to start in about two weeks so five weeks post-surgery you'll start doing the um, radiation therapy with chemotherapy. Then, yeah, so radiation therapy with chemotherapy. And I was like, oh, you know, what about the risk of infection because I won't be fully healed then. And he's like, five weeks, you should be okay. You know, you'll be 80% healed. Then your uterus should be back down to normal size. So, you know, I feel really confident in treating that area with that amount of time post surgery. So, we had two weeks at home with our beautiful boy, just, you know, figuring out our rhythm and our groove with him before I had to start the next lot of treatment. And by the time I had to start the radiation therapy with the chemotherapy, I felt ready for it. I was, I really didn't want to do more chemotherapy. I wasn't stoked about that part. And I was really scared about doing the radiation therapy leading up to it. Um, But when we got to that point, I was like, okay, no, this is the next phase. We just have to get through this next bit and then we're, you know, we can move on with our lives. And the funny thing is with the radiation therapy, once I did it the first time, it was the easiest part of everything. You literally lie on this bed. They move this big machine around your body that targets the area that they're treating but you can't feel a thing the worst bit was the chemotherapy again and the first day alongside the radiation therapy it took the nurses seven attempts to get the cannula into my arm and by the time they got it in was when the, the time that I should have been out of the hospital
1: oh Anastasia
2: so I was not happy that day
1: <laughs> no absolutely not
2: and it's hard cuz the, her- the nurses feel awful not getting it in straight away they feel so bad but it's not their fault either you know they're all saying i'm so sorry and you know i'm sitting there crying cuz i'm so over it but i can't be like i know you know like i know it's not their fault i couldn't be angry at them um but then after i had that first day i was fine with it the next the next few times i really made sure that I was hydrated and warm every time I went in so that my veins were able to be accessible for the cannulas. <laughs> With the radiation therapy, I had to go in once a day, every day for five weeks and have the chemotherapy once a week for those five weeks. Then once that was completed, I then had to have four sessions of what's called brachytherapy. So brachiotherapy, they actually put you to sleep with a general anesthetic, insert an instrument into the cervix and the uterus and target, do a, a concentrated dose targeting that area. Um, and two of those sessions were backed back two days in a row. Once I'd finished the, the therapy, that was it. The treatment was all over. So that was about two months ago now. That was finished. Yeah. So,
1: what has happened, Anastasia, since that to where you're at today in terms of your diagnosis?
2: So, I had a review with my surgeon a month post treatment. He really (laughs) said, you know, because he was there from day dot seeing what it was like pre surgery, pre chemotherapy, pre radiation therapy. And said, everything's looking pretty good. Um, I have to have another PET scan in the next couple of weeks. That will then give them a, a picture of how well the treatment has worked. So that will, um, you know, be okay. They said, depending on what it's looking like, you might need to have another PET scan six weeks later. But um, we're hoping that, you know, you won't need to, that after that it'll just be regular checkups every three months with my gynecologist. oncologist.
1: Well, Anastasia, you can tell we're all lost for words, Charlie and I, because listening to your journey is it's just so monumental, like I've mentioned before, and going through birth and pregnancy with cancer and, you know, I'm doing, you know, crossing everything for your next PET scan as well and just speaking so bravely about it you're phenomenal you are the you are so phenomenal
2: oh thank you I some yeah like I said some days I'm just like did that really just happen (laughs) yeah but you know I I think I'm very lucky in the sense that I've got so much love and support around me without that it would have been extremely challenging but because Mm -hmm. because we do have the love and support that we do, we were able to get through it and feel positive throughout the journey, you know, the diagnosis part, that's obviously the the hardest part. And physically the surgery was pretty, you know, tough on my body, but nothing gets you moving quicker than not having your baby with you because, yeah. you know, I had to get up and get going. I couldn't just feel sorry for myself. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, like, just phenomenal. How do you feel in your body now?
2: I feel great now. Like, it took about a month, I think, for me to start feeling really good, um, but I feel really good now. Um, my knees feel a little bit like they. sometimes they just, like, you know, like you've done an intense workout. I can feel that a little bit from time to time. But other than that, everything else feels pretty good because towards the end of the chemotherapy and radiation therapy, I was feeling really unwell in the stomach, like I didn't feel like eating. I still didn't get sick, as in, like, nausea or vomiting, but I just I, I had to force myself to eat because I just didn't feel like it. So it was nice to to finish that up and start feeling like me again and, you know. Have feel like my body back,
1: <laughs> absolutely. And you know, being a mother to Richie, your son, and and a family, and enjoying Kazi, you know, it's like it all just happened. And you know, you probably didn't even get to enjoy your new home and or everything that you know you've been through in the last year.
2: Yeah, So, I mean, I feel pretty lucky in the sense that I was able to work remotely before giving birth. So I, I um, you know, spent a lot of time at home in a safe, what felt like a safe place for me to heal and process the journey. And, yeah, and then, you know, obviously completing treatment, just enjoying being a mum for the, for the first time because he's my first baby and my last. I won't be able to have any more kids now because of the surgery that I had, um, then removing my tubes and transplanting my ovaries it's just not even possible anymore and the radiation therapy has killed my uterus essentially so um it's been really nice to just enjoy my time with him not having to leave and go into the hospital every day and you know, he's, yeah he's the best little thing ever <laughs> you know their smiles just light up your your day your world and to just soak that up and not have to worry about leaving every day has been so nice you know yeah
1: yeah, for sure that's just yeah incredible that that bond you always have with him too and lovely before we have to wrap it all up is there anything you want to say to our listeners about you know cervical cancer cervical cancer screening because like we said at the start it's not talked about it's it's just, you know, you know it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you kind of do a few pap smears. It's like not something that's in the forefront of a lot of our minds. So anything you'd like to say to anyone?
2: I just I think for young women, especially like even in your early 20s, just make sure you go get it done. Talk to your family about if there's any history of it in your family, because I didn't know until I was diagnosed that my auntie on my dad's side Um, had cervical cancer she had treatment she's in remission now um, and has been for a really long time and yeah it's just you know that wasn't said and if I had have known that I could have raised that with my GP she probably could have kept a closer eye on me as well and I also feel like as women GPs should probably you know, if you're seeing a GP for the first time, that should be one of the first questions they ask you. But they don't. It's on us to stay on top of it, essentially. And, you know, five years, are you really going to remember the exact date you had your last PEP smear? No. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just important to find a GP that you're comfortable with and you know, making sure you get those tests done regularly. And if you feel like you want to get it done sooner, then just do it. Just say you want it.
1: It's a little bit of an uncomfortable experience for long term health goal, you know, like benefit. And I think that's something that's, you know, it's a, and they yeah. I just think five years is a bit is such a stretch. I think it should be two years, but anyway, that's what it is now, the recommendation.
2: I feel too, but I'm not a doctor.
1: <laughs> yeah, neither. <laughs> So thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, and we cannot thank you enough for coming on our show and spreading awareness and being vulnerable and sharing something that you obviously have, you know, you're not, you know, you could tell you were thinking about all the the, the nitty-gritty of it all too. So, you know, bringing all of that to the forefront, I know that would have been massive for you today also, Anastasia, and we're just so lucky to have had you on. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Pleasure. I think if it can help a few people and um, raise a bit more awareness about it, then I'm so happy to talk about it. And, you know, if anyone needs to talk to someone about it, I'm more than yeah happy to do that too. Um, and if you are pregnant and you get diagnosed with cancer, it is still possible to have your baby. <laughs> mm.
3: Yeah, that's so good to hear. And, you know, Catherine and I were were saying um, off air, it was a little while ago actually, but we were saying when you're in your twenties or thirties, you just think you're bulletproof to these sorts of things. Yeah. Like no one in their twenties or thirties thinks they're going to have cancer. You know what I mean? So I know, you know, I've certainly had a kick up the butt lately just hearing other women's stories to go and make sure I've got all my screenings, my checks done because we're not bulletproof. Doesn't matter how healthy
2: we are exactly. It's um it's yeah, you you something you just don't have control over you. No. Okay, so, um, yeah, you're not in business, if you try.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Anastasia, will tag you um, in the episode as well. So if there is anyone that does want to reach out to you, are you happy for us to do that?
2: That's totally fine because when I was pregnant, um, the Cancer Council actually connected me with a lady who went through something similar to me to talk to her about her process. And um, I found that really helped a lot. If I if I didn't have her to talk to, her, I would have struggled at the idea of everything being okay towards the end. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. thank
1: you. Well, thank you so, so much again, lovely. And we are wishing you all the best with the rest of your journey. And, yeah, thank you again for sharing your story and sharing Richie with us, your beautiful son. My pleasure. All right, well,
0: we'll chat to you soon bye thank you bye thank you so much for listening if you have enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave a five-star review that way we can continue to inspire and reach more mamas around the globe if you would like to get in contact request a guest or topic then head to the no bs approach to motherhood instagram page and send us a direct message otherwise until next episode stay sane mama